0: Is the only one Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at around 100 pages of the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my main source material. Currently, we are in the middle of a series on James Fenimore Cooper, in particular James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Stocking Tales. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing a couple of his sea novels as well. But our focus will be on the Leather Stocking Tales. And right now we are in the second, chronologically based on the character, uh, but it's also the second written, by the way, um, The Last of the Mohicans. Um, So I urge you to go back and listen to the first episode on, on The Last of the Mohicans if you're just joining us. But if not, uh, I'll just give you a brief rundown on what happened in in the first hundred pages or so of The Last of the Mohicans. So in that first part of the novel, the first nine chapters, a small party consisting of Major Hayward, Duncan Hayward, Cora, and Alice. And they're later, those, those two are the daughters of, of, a, of a, a military officer, a British military officer named Monroe, who's a real historical figure, by the way. And later on, they meet up with this psalm writer and songster, song, sol, solster, I guess his name is, or his profession is, uh, but his name is David Gamet. Now, David Gamet, he's a character that's a bit presented in kind of a funny, laughable way early on in the story. And he's completely written out of the movie version, which I which I did watch uh, since I recorded the last episode out of curiosity. I, I remember seeing it years years ago, but I didn't remember much of it. And he's completely written out of that story, which I think is a bit of a shame because I can understand why he can't quite fit into the tone of the story. And he's a bit goofy, and some of his high points in the in the novel are things that I don't think would have translated very well, right? Like later on you'll see this business um with like the bear suit and some of the more kind of from our current aesthetics more ridiculous aspects of the story he's sensed front and center in those parts but he has one actually one of the strongest arcs of any of the characters in this this novel um but anyways that's that's an aside so we got these four characters hayward david gamut and these two girls cora and alice now Cora and Alice are very interesting, they're they they are half sisters actually, and Cora's mother was a West Indian and she was biracial, so Cora is some part from Fraction Black, so race plays a role in this novel, not just between the whites and the Indians, as in many of Cooper's novels you have this distinction between the white way of life and the Indians way of life, really kind of articulated more strongly in the character of, of Hawkeye, of, of Natty Bumpo, Leatherstocking, whatever name you want to use for him, who was raised by Indians but still held on to this very white identity. It touches those distinctions. We have this other racial aspect to it, and it'll come up again in other of the Leatherstocking tales where, where race um, does, does play a role. The role of, of the, you know, the reality of the exploitation of black people is in the backdrop of, of several of the Leatherstocking tales. So they're traveling, they're trying to get the girls in particular to this uh, fort, Fort um, William Henry is the name of the fort. Now along the way, they run into, oh, they're being, they're being guided by a a Huron who they think is a Mohawk named Magua, Magua, M-A-G-U-A. Now they run into Hawkeye, who's Leatherstocking, Natty Bumpo, our main character, the Deerslayer. If you watched that, but he's now he, he now takes the name Hawkeye, or he's often described as the Scout. He meets Chingachgook, his comrade, and Chingachgook's son Uncas, and they meet up with this party, and they're immediately worried that Magua will betray them because Magua they identify right away not as a Mohawk but as a Huron, a Mingo. And they immediately say, well, Mingo's always gonna be a Mingo and you can't trust him. Hayward also was worried and a little bit um, bothered by this figure that was supposed to guide them. And he had, there were some warning signs that he noticed. And so together they to sort of scare him off. They tried to expose him and scare him off. Worried about an ambush, they go are, to Glens Falls They basically hide out in an island Surrounded by waterfalls Which is identified as Glens Falls However, in other words, the, the Huron do eventually attack them And Chingachgook and Unkiss and Hawkeye escape Through the water But the rest of them, rest of the whites are captured by the Hurons And that's where the first hundred pages of Last of the Weekend ends So we're a quarter way through the novel And it doesn't seem like that much happened uh, That's just Cooper's writing for you <laughs> All right, so we'll pick up on chapter ten in, in, and I'll kind of walk you through, as always, well, not always, but most often, I, I kind of will walk you through these chapters and highlight the themes as they come up. Okay, chapter ten. Uh, so they're captured. Um, this is the we start with the captive group. Now, th- this is something Cooper does all the time, and I, I've only read two of his novels, and I'm I'm well into the Pathfinder, the third of the Leather Stocking Tales, and this kind of chase hunt and chase and capture and then someone else's other the chase is turned around this is what Cooper does this is just what you expect from it it's just like you know the same way you expect fleeing Japanese in a Godzilla movie this is what you expect from a Cooper it's, it gets a little bit uh predictable I guess um but this is what his audience liked and this is what he was really good at um but so we got a captive a, a situation of captors and then someone from the outside trying to rescue the people who have been captive we saw it several times, actually, in just the Deer Slayer, in just one novel. So Hayward, though, he, he meets with Makwa, his, his, his captor, face-to-face, and he sees that Makwa was earlier wounded by Hawkeye, and this was, uh, you know, he was shot, and then he ran off into the woods. And It was kind of clear if he was wounded or, or injured or, or dying, and this proves he was. So after questioning, the Whites report that the, uh, the, you know, Makwa questions them and they report that, yeah, the others escaped to the river. And Cooper describes the, the rage of the Indians at this news. And this really raises the tension by showing this real threat of violence that is present at at the moment. And in fact, this is a very action-packed novel in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of tension and a lot of violence and a lot of a uh, threat of violence. And it makes kind of the resolution, although the resolution's violent itself, but some of the moments before the final resolution of the novel, you know, kind of interesting because it, it ends up being a novel about performance and and argument. And you almost have this kind of idea of a Roman Senate, but that's later in the novel. But at this point, there's still this lot of tension about violence just under the surface. So what makes this so dangerous is just the sheer number of, of Indian warriors that, that are around them. He says, he knew well, this is Cooper writing, he knew well the authority of an Indian chief was so little conventional that it was oftener maintained by physical superiority than by any moral supremacy he might suppose possess. The danger, therefore, was the magnified exactly in proportion to the number of the savage spirits by which they were surrounded. The most positive mandate from him, who seemed the acknowledged leader was liable to be violated at any moment by any rash hand that might choose to sacrifice a victim to the manes of some dead relative or friend. While, therefore, he sustained the outward appearance of calmness and fortitude, his heart leaped into his throat whenever any of the fierce captors drew nigher than common to the helpless sisters or fastened one of the sullen wandering looks on those fragile forms, which were so little able to resist the slightest assault. So this is just ramping up the violence. But instead of killing the whites, the chief, not... Magua, so Magua's taking orders and uh, we learn later on that Magua's trying to kind of move his way up and get redemption and he's got his own very interesting character he's one of the most interesting villains um, I probably looked at in this entire podcast so far and, but uh, he the chief though orders the group on into the woods and during this travel Hayward tries to trick Magua into kind of making a deal with him so there's kind of a wink wink conversation where he's like well we could kind of work something out and we could escape and I might have something for you or we might have something for you back at the fort so he tries to, he thinks Magwa can still be redeemed. He doesn't know Magwa's story yet and how violent and angry and revengeful he really is. Essentially he's trying to bribe Magwa. Now Korra is scheming in her own way trying to leave signs on the ground to allow the woodsmen to track them and eventually she does like break a twig or snap a twig and this this comes up later um in the plot in the story now during this chapter hayward learns how famous hawkeye and uncas and Chingachgook are among the hurons uh uncas and Chingachgook are are mohicans kind of by blood but they were Basically, essentially raised by Delaware. So their loyalty is more to the Delaware tribe. And the Delawares and Mohicans were traditional allies and traditional enemies of of the Huron. So they were quite famous. Now, Hawkeye is quite famous. He's known as La Long Carabine. This is his name among the Indians. So, of course, they know French. They're French allies. So they have pretty good French. And they, they use this French term um, basically... Referring to him as his gun so his names throughout the series so far have been Hawkeye and Deerslayer and his gun is actually called Killdeer Which if you want to take these stories chronologically of course Deerslayer was written last so the story of Killdeer and the name Deerslayer Kind of you know are, were actually written down at the end of this process of Cooper telling the story But I don't know how much of that was retconned but, you know, this, the association of this character with his rifle is very important. Um, so, anyways, that's all that really happens in this chapter. And, and finally, they arrive at a hill. So, then we get to chapter 11. And this is a very, very interesting chapter where we learn all about Magua. So, Hayward is still trying to talk Magwa into helping him. And maybe forming some kind of alliance. He stresses how important the girls are to Monroe. And basically, the suggestion here is like, you will become perhaps wealthy or you'll get something good out of it if you help us get to the fort safely you'll be in Monroe's debt hearing the name Monroe really piques the interest of magua but not because of his interest in wealth we we think when we first hear this that he must be thinking about the ransom but actually he's after revenge against um Monroe. and and it's at this point that we get magua's tragic backstory and it's described in actually quite a bit of detail so we get one of Magua's great monologues. Magua is one of the greatest speakers in uh, among the the three novels I've been looking at so far. I haven't got to the Pioneers and the Prairie yet, but Magua is the best at kind of delivering these these monologues. They're very dramatic. Um, something they didn't really do in the movie, unfortunately. Uh, there's a little bit of it, but not quite as elaborate as are described here. Maybe it couldn't be filmable that way. Now, the backdrop of this is the relationship between alcohol and the American Indians. I know there's a lot of cultural stereotypes tied up in that, and Cooper is certainly part of that and feeding off that, and certainly he's probably contributed a lot to a lot of our representations of Indians and culture. I mean, that's one thing we have to talk about at some point in this series, is to what degree do do many of our stereotypes about Indians come from Cooper's own hand? I mean, really, at, at the time Cooper was writing, you didn't have that much, not many American writers, at least not ones that... Are, you read, were read 100 years later you had Charles Brockton Brown of course you had all the political writings but set those aside you had Charles Brockton Brown Irving and Cooper and then later on the kind of in the next generation you get the the Sleepy Hollow writers and others but there weren't that many American writers that people go back and still sort of read um, I got some poets and Mary Wilson Wolf, not Wollstonecraft Mary Rowlandson and, the, and these folks um, but, you know, there's probably a lot of, of burden that Cooper must bear on how Indians have been represented in culture. Now, one stereotype, and there's some historical narrative to this as well uh, that has to be acknowledged, is that uh, the role of alcohol in, in the conquest of the Americas, right? Uh, kind of the cultural stereotype is that white people sold liquor and booze to Indians and this made them weak, and they stopped fighting they stopped becoming warriors they became dependent in trade relations to get more liquor they became alcoholic and this was key to their defeat and being supplanted by whites right that's that's kind of the story um and of course there's all this these stereotypes about the drunken indian you even get this in mark twain right with indian joe Uh, I'm going to grab a book quick so I can say a little bit more about this. Sorry, I couldn't find it, It w- but it would have been Wallace's The Death and Rebirth of the Seneca. And that has a chapter called like, Slums, in the, Slums in the Wilderness. And that's set, actually, the the time period that the Pioneers is set, which is like the 1790s, or it's really about the 1790s, the post-defeat era of, of the Iroquois, after the Treaty of Paris ceded all this land to... Uh, the United States and there was one result of this was the system of reservations put up in upstate New York and he talks about alcohol and land speculators and trade and how all that really did contribute to some degree to the devastation of the Iroquois people in upstate New York now Cooper here is writing about 1757 so that might be a bit anachronistic but anyways it's a it's a it's a It's a view of Indians that we have to deal with if we want to fully understand this story. So let's just jump into what Magwa says about his, about drink, about alcohol. Listen, Magwa was born a chief and a warrior among the red Hurons of the lakes. He saw the sun of twenty summers make the snows of twenty winters run off the streams before he saw the pale face, and he was happy. Then his Canada fathers came into the woods and taught him to drink the fire water, and he became a rascal. The Hurons drove him from the graves of his fathers and they would cha- as they would chase the hunted buffalo. He ran down the shores of the lakes and followed their outlet to the city of Canaan. There he hunted and fished till the people chased him again through the woods into the arms of his enemies. The chief who was born a Huron was at last a warrior among the Mohawks. Okay, and then he goes on. He gets this name, uh, basically the Sly Fox is the name he gets. uh, Le Renard is how he's often addressed, the Fox. But he gets to know Monroe, and there's a moment where he shows up drunk to work. He's, of course, posing as a Mohawk or serving with the Mohawks, and that's how Monroe sees him, and that's how, basically, he's addressed by the English. Early on in the novel, and there's a scene where he's beaten up by, by Monroe, uh, to kind of punish him for his drunkenness, and this is a humiliating act for him, and this is part of his motivation. He wants to get revenge on Monroe for this, even if it means killing or seizing his daughters as his wife, and he eventually wants one of these girls, young one of the young women, to be his wife. He also wants to be redeemed among the Huron. So he, he's not single-minded on revenge, he also wants to return to the proper state among the Huron. So he's motivated by both of these things, and this makes him a, a, quite a complex villain in the story and a very interesting one, I think. He wants to ha- harm Monroe, that's part of it, and he also wants to gain a wife. So he thinks he can kind of do two birds with one stone through Monroe's daughters. His wife was actually taken from him when he was kicked out of the tribe. He lost his wife entirely. He wants Cora, and he says he'll give up, give Alice up if Cora stays as his wife. So this is his, his basic scheme, his plan. He says, When the blow scorched the back of the Huron, as when he was beaten by Monroe, he would know where to find a woman to feel the smart. The daughter of Monroe would draw his water, hoe his corn, and cook his venison. The body of the Greyhead would sleep among the cannons. But his heart would lie within reach of knife. Uh, the knife of Les Subtiles. So the key word here is he wants a woman to draw his water and hoe his corn. And of course, one of the big differences between the, Al- the, the Iroquois and the Algonquins and white Americans was... This attitude about who cultivates the land among the Native Americans it tended to be the women who cultivated the land you had of course the corn goddess and that was considered a kind of women's work and among whites women didn't do that men did most of the farming and this is actually something Jefferson brought up with his correspondences with the the defeated Iroquois after the American Revolution so this is kind of famous I'm not claiming uh, to have You know, identify this. In fact, I think it was Walls I first learned this from about this address. But he gave this address to to Handsome Lake, who was a Seneca prophet uh, of the post revolutionary period. And basically, this speech, which was given in 1802 during Jefferson's first term, is trying to convince the Seneca to cultivate land and to go to the land and basically assimilate. And, you know, Jefferson believed that Indians could assimilate into white society in ways that black people couldn't. And here's what he says, but going, to, quote, but going into the state of agriculture, it may be as advantageous to a society as it is to an individual who has more land than he can improve to sell apart and lay out the money and stocks and implements for agriculture for the better improvement of the residue. A little land well stocked and improved will yield more than a great deal without stock or improvement. I hope, therefore, that on further reflection, you'll see this transaction as a more favorable light both as it concerns the interest of your nation and the exercise of that superintending care which I am sincerely anxious to employ for their substance and happiness. Go on then, brother, in the great reformation you have undertaken. Persuade our red brethren to be sober and to cultivate their lands and see women to spin and weave for their families. You will soon see your women and children well fed and clothed, your men living happily in peace and plenty, and your numbers increasing from year to year. It will be a great glory to you to have been instruments of so happy a change and your children's children from generation to generation will repeat your name with love and gratitude forever. So there's gender politics in Jefferson's address here that women should be like making clothing, working in the home and men should be plowing the fields. And of course though, uh, Makwa is still the old way. He wants his wife to, to grow his corn for him. So that, that, that's a lot of plot established right here, and it's a really important chapter. Now, the Indians are preparing to torture the men, which is, a, again, another common device Cooper uses in these stories, the threat of of this Indian torture. Makwa finally gives them a way out, asking Alice directly for her thoughts on the bargain. And when Alice refuses the deal, basically Alice goes, but Korus stays, Makwa throws a tomahawk at her, basically trying to kill... Um, Alice, and he nearly does. Hayward in a rage breaks free of his bounds and and battle just a random Huron who's there. And during the fight, the Huron he's fighting follows over dead, struck by a rifle shot. And this is the the dramatic arrival of Hawkeye and Shingachgook and Uncas to save the day. Um, but I just want to, again, say what a great villain Makwa is and how well conceived he is. He He's not like anything we have in the Deerslayer. He's you know, I'm not I don't so far. I actually prefer the Deerslayer deer slayer in a lot of ways to this novel. But there's such richness in this this villain. I, I just think he's he's such a wonderful um, antagonist in the story. And he's so well realized and well developed and complex. And he's he's actually a villain we sympathize for uh, as often as not because he's not completely amoral. Um, he's you know, you understand him at various times in, in the novel. Especially compared to some of the other white, some of the other characters we meet, they don't have these same kind of arcs. Chingachgook and you know the novels named after Chingachgook, the last of the Mohicans, but he doesn't really have the same kind of character arc that characters like Maqua and David Gamut have. So, um, moving on to chapter twelve, this chapter is not much to say. It's basically a fight scene. It's described over quite a few pages, um, and it's fun to read. I'm not gonna go line by line through these fight scenes for you anyways but the end result is that the Hurons are killed except for Makwa who escapes they're about to put the coup de gras on poor Makwa and he's able to escape into the woods this is actually the second time he escapes this way Uh, and there's a lot of times where Makwa is subdued or defeated and but not killed and of course Cooper needs the villain uh you know so you can't have him killed but he's he's the one bad guy who gets away We've seen you've seen this a million times in movies right where all the the lackeys get killed but the you know the bad guy gets away so he second time in the novel in just 12 chapters he escapes death at the hands of hawkeye the first time it was a sh- kind of random shot in the woods that wounded him so while this battle site's being cleaned up and the prisoners freed and part of this is a very gruesome description of chin gachgook you know scalping the dead which is something he, he does. Um, Hawkeye and Gamut, while they're doing this cleaning up of the battle site, talk about professions and utility in the woods. And uh, it came up before. I talk a little bit about it in part one of my review of Last of the Mohicans. It's something, partially Hawkeye doesn't understand what the utility of Gamut's profession is, which is writing psalms and teaching people to sing songs and teaching singing. And it's also something the Indians don't understand, Is later on we learn in the novel, that anyone who sings is conceived of by the Huron to be basically insane. Now, what Hawkeye says is, you're stupid to be out in the woods here without actually trying to learn the skills of the woods, without trying to be a bit of a frontiersman, whatever your profession was back in the city, you're out in the woods now and you need to learn to survive. And David's response is kind of interesting. He, he essentially claims that his life is in the hands of God. He, he has this, this Calvinist idea almost of, of providence. And he says, thou sayest well, that has caught the true spirit of Christianity. He that is to be saved will be saved. He that is predestined to be damned will be damned. This is the doctrine of truth, and most consoling and refreshing it is to the true believer. And Hawkeye's response is, Doctrine or nor doctrine, tis the belief of knaves and the curse of an honest man. I can credit that yonder Huron was to fall by my hand, for with my own hands I have seen it, but nothing short of being a witness will cause me to think that he met with any reward, or that Chingachgook there will be condemned at the final day. And then they get in a little theological dispute about about predestination and agency and, and Hawkeye still kind of hold on to his belief in, in agency and he can't accept predestination partly because he, he wants to believe that Chingachgook, his good friend, will be saved in the end. Now, as they travel away from this site of this battle, Hawkeye gives his story of how he tracked the Hurons and how they found their prisoners and it's not that important. Uh, but an important part of this was the sign left by Cora earlier—the broken um, twigs. So, chapter thirteen. Cha- this chapter is a little more a little more than a cat and a mouse kind of game as they travel to the fort. They—they they see a lot of dead from nearby battles and from traveling bands of Huron. There's like skirmishing, and of course, there's armies. This is all during the Seven Years' War, and there's French armies. There's the Indian auxiliaries to the French army and then there's like the English troops and they see signs of these kind of skirmishes and we get a reminder that one of the major themes of this novel is this kind of the death of the Indians it's, it's of course called the last of the Mohicans but the death of the Indians and the irreplaceable death of Indians is something you feel a lot especially in the later part of the novel where you start to hear the Indians talk more about this theme of of our decline and our inevitable decline as a people and how, you know, every lost warrior is, is you know, almost irreplaceable. And these people are in irreversible decline. And this is something that Cooper mourns quite greatly. And we feel that each dead Indian is another step towards this this decline. And to remind us of this, Cooper actually comes back to the theme of The Last of the Mohicans, which was first introduced, I think, back in Chapter 3, when Chingachgook says, My son will be the last of the Mohicans, because... He won't be able to find a wife who's a pure-blooded Mohican, and and so anyone he marries will be of another tribe, and that will dilute this Mohican blood. So he's going to be he's going to he thinks he'll be the last, or Uncas will be the last, but in fact it's Chingachgook who turns out to be the last. So we have here what is it? Where is it? Uh, This is on page six fifteen of the Library of America version. Tis true in part, and yet at the bottom, tis a wicked lie. Such a treaty was made in ages gone through the devilties of the Dutchers who wished to disarm the natives that had the best right to this country where they had settled themselves. The Mohicans, though a part of the same nation, having to deal with the English, never entered into the silly bargain, but kept to their manhood, as in truth did the Delaware, when their eyes were opened by their followers. You see before you a chief of the great Mohican Sagamores. Once his family could chase the deer all over the tracts of, of country wider than that which belonged to the Albany Pateroon without crossing brook or hill that was not his own but what is left to their descendants he may find his six feet of earth when god chooses and keep it in peace perhaps if he has no friend who will take the pains to sink his head so low that plowshares cannot reach it it's quite a nice little speech a reference there to the the manorial uh landowning system in in new york which kind of started with the dutch and and later on it was kept going after new york was handed over to the to the english but basically the whole hudson valley was divided into these huge manners almost feudal white manors, and this extended into the revolutionary period something that would have certainly been on the mind of a new york new york writer and from a family like cooper and a man from land speculating roots so anyways that's chapter 13 chapter 14 now they must get past these french soldiers before they can get to the fort that's the next kind of obstacle in their way to get to the fort. And they find one. There's a French soldier there. Hayward c- approaches him in French and tries to trick him into believing he's a French soldier. And meanwhile, Chingachuk comes behind, kills him and scalps him very, very quickly. So we get another gruesome scene of, of Indian warfare. They're about to look at this scene from above and they see Fort Henry and they see the French army and they see the troops from Fort Edward arriving. And they see that fighting has already begun. So despite being scouted by French troops, they eventually are able to find their way into the fort and the girls are able to find their way into the fa- with their father. And so Monroe, at the end of this chapter, is reunited with his daughters, Alice and Cora. So with this, in cha- we move into chapter 15. And here, Cooper moves us forward in time a little bit. The action has moved from the individual to the epic. And for a few chapters, we're going to get these kind of epic... Uh, historical events actually there there really was a uh, surrender of Fort William Henry in the War of the French Indian War and there really was a massacre that followed it, and that's what's described here. So Hawkeye kind of moves to the background of our story as does the titular last of the Mohicans. instead we have a lot more about Hayward, Monroe, his daughters, and then kind of the politics of this and we even get, You know, we get historical figures like Monroe and Montcalm. Montcalm, the French general, who who took the surrender of the fort and was basically the big French general uh, in North America during the war. So the fort is under siege for a few days. Hayward is working on the fort and he sees the white flags of truce coming. And he also sees that Hawkeye has been captured. Hawkeye was sent out, I think, to get help or, or something. I, I was a bit unclear on why he was sent out, but he was sent out to do some kind of work and he gets captured and he's brought back at this point, And he's kind of part of the the tribute uh, for the peace negotiations. Monroe asked Hayward to negotiate with Montcalm instead of him because he's arrived to discuss terms and he just doesn't really want to face him and I think he doesn't want to be responsible for the surrender or whatever so it's basically Hayward's job to do the negotiation and during the negotiation Montcalm says that he wants peace and he wants a negotiated settlement and basically he good cops bad cops them he's the good cop wants peace and negotiation but it's the Indians who want blood and, and so that's they're the bad cop one of the Hurons with him is our good friend Makwa who is described as furious as he stands there silently the situation here is dire, to be sure. The English are outnumbered. Our hero Hawkeye has has been even disarmed and 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 captured, although I think he's back. You know, he's returned to them, but he's even futile in this situation. The most interesting act- aspect of this chapter is in the use of the Indian as a threat of violence compared to the civilized Montcalm, and you know, war and barbarism and civilization are all mixed up in interesting ways in these chapters certainly indians are going to engage in barbarous acts here but the war itself is caused by european politics and it's something that gets projected on the new world and the victims of that in invariably are you know relatively innocent colonists but even more so the indian people get drawn into these wars into this violence and so much of the violence of north america in the 17th and 18th century was a byproduct of European colonization in one way or another, either extensions of European wars, or if you want to accept the interpretation that the Iroquois expansion was were essentially mourning wars, where they were looking for captives among other Indian tribes to bring back to replace those who died from disease and other wars. In that case, that's all has European roots as well. So uh, we shouldn't accept this strict division between Montcalm as the civilized and Makwa as the barbarian I don't think Cooper really wants us to either but he does set this up in an interesting way okay so that's that's what happens in chapter 15 in chapter 16 we get a little bit uh, well this is this chapter is really about Monroe Hayward and his daughters so we get some individual character development despite this macro politics these 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 Life and death issues. We get this kind of micro look examination of this family. and Monroe's talking to Hayward about their future. And Hayward wants to marry Alice. He confesses he wants to marry Alice. And Monroe's a little taken aback at first because he assumed Cora was his interest. I think Monroe seems to respect Cora a lot more and he has greater feelings for Cora. Cora is presented as much more capable and talented, and she's a tragic figure of the novel. So he's a bit surprised that that she's interested. He immediately thinks that it's a racial thing. So it, it's important to know though at this point, there's no clear evidence presented that Cora is black or has any black heritage. And when this is revealed to him at this point in the story, Hayward insists like, well, certainly I don't have this prejudice that you're implying to me. But there's a lot of tension in this relationship between Hayward and Monroe over this fear that core is being slighted because of her racial heritage and Monroe is presented then as completely anti-racist having actually married a, a black woman from the the West Indies so we we actually have here two frontiers we have the West Indian frontier and race mixing and we have now this New York frontier and race mixing is a bit a part of it too because Uncas whose father mourns that he can't marry a pure-blooded Mohican is actually interested in the most mixed racial character in the novel Cora and you know of course that marriage can't or that that relationship never goes anywhere because both these characters die by the end Um, but there's there's kind of a contrast here between the kind of the racial frontier of the Indies and slavery being a big part of that and then the racial frontier of upstate New York where you have this violence and genocide issue. so these the two great if we want to look at this from a really Atlantic history perspective the two great crimes of Atlantic history are of course the slave trade and the genocide of the American Indian people and they're both kind of hinted at and you know I don't know how much of this was in Cooper's mind but it seems at least to some degree he's thinking about this and here's what uh, Monroe says about his own background You may already know, Major Hayward, that my family was both ancient and honorable. Though it might not altogether be endowed with that amount of wealth, that should correspond with its degree. I was, maybe, such as one yourself when I planted my faith to Alice Graham, the only child of a neighboring lard of some estate. But the connection was disagreeable to her father on more accounts than my poverty. I did, therefore, what an honest man should. I restored the maiden her troth and departed the country in the service of my king. I had seen many regions and had shed much blood in different lands before duty called me to the islands of the West Indies. There was a lot to form a connection with, with one who in time became my wife and the mother of Cora. She was the daughter of a gentleman of these isles by, by a lady whose misfortune it was, if you will, to be descended remotely from that unfortunate class who are so basely enslaved to administer to the wants of a luxurious people. I, sir, that is the curse entailed on Scotland by her unnatural union with a foreign and trading people. But could I find a man among them who would dare to reflect on my child? He should feel the weight of a father's anger. Ha, Major Hayward, you are yourself born in the, to, at the South, where these unfortunate beings are considered a race inferior to your own. End quote. There's a lot of good stuff in here. The one is that he has seen Scotland, his own homeland, as also a colonized territory. And the the mid 18th century was a time in which Scotland was openly resisting the union with Great Britain and the United Kingdom and you had uh Stuart pretenders and actually a lot of Stuarts were still alive, right? Um I think James the 3rd is still around and Involved in uprisings, and I, I think the 1740s there was a major one. So this idea of Scotland as a colonized people, with it with an aristocracy that had lost much of its wealth to English dominance. So he's got some solidarity with the people of this West Indian frontier. Now, is not presented as a quarter black, right? Her mother, maybe maybe a quarter, maybe she's at most a quarter black because her mother's not. 100% African Or Of African um, Background Right Because he says I ch- She had Black blood From some time back Now maybe it was just a mother Or a father Probably a mother But it's not clear How much black blood she has And for Hayward never sees her that way But it's something on the mind Of Monroe And it's all really fascinating I love this part of The novel um, And again Something that's completely written out of the movie version Unfortunately Now, before this plotline can be resolved, it it really can't be, and it never really is. It's kind of brought up here and then sort of dropped for the adventure story that comes in the second half of the novel. But the formal surrender negotiations take place. Webb suggests that Fort Henry, Fort William Henry be surrendered surrendered, since it can't be held. Montcalm gives his terms, and basically the fort is to be abandoned, and the men leave with their arms and honor intact. And so this is basically a good deal, and so... Uh, it's accepted by Monroe um, but I think an interesting thing here is in this chapter is to think about is Cora's character her strong characterization a result of her race is it a result of of her background in a way and or is that in Cooper's mind so um, let, let's just do one more chapter this episode's getting a little bit long um, chapter 17 this, this one begins in the French camp with Montcalm walking through his troops. It's, it's very much reminiscent of Henry V, it, which actually Cooper cites a lot in his. Each chapter begins with like a, some verse from somewhere in English literature. And he often talks about, uses Shakespeare and Henry V sometimes. So there's that famous scene where Henry V is kind of walking through the, with, through the troops. Um, so that's sort of done here. But he finds Maqua, and he finds Maqua basically aiming his rifle to shoot Monroe, who's walking the ramparts of the fort uh, moments, minutes before the surrender. Moncombe stops him from doing it, and then we see the evacuation begin taking place. During the evacuation, one of the Huron kills an English woman, and then we get a description of the train and the violence that gets inflicted. So once this woman is killed, then the Indians basically unleash their fury on the indians and this massacre takes place now cooper describes it as like hundreds and hundreds being killed you know maybe 1500 or so like you know most of the people in the train being massacred historically it's it seems like my research into this and that was just a wikipedia google search kind of thing but it sounds like it was closer to 50 to 100 people were killed and there's still a lot of historical speculation on whether it was the Indians, whether Montcalm allowed this to happen, or whether he tried to stop them. But the pr- narrative that Cooper presents is basically it's Makwa trying to inflict his revenge on on Monroe, and that Montcalm is trying actually actively to stop this. And so he's presented as a bit of a good guy. So um, the positive characterization of Montcalm. Is something we have to consider, especially next to the very negative characterization of the Huron, which I think might be a bit um, problematic, given that this war itself was the result of European politics over land in Central Europe, you know, and and then that spreaded to fights over land everywhere else. But the massacre begins now. Gamut and the women are captured during the escape, and they're brought to a hill, and f- and from which they're able to watch the unfolding bloodshed. So the weakest characters at this time, Gamut doesn't end up weak, and Korra is not really that weak, but she's perceived as weak. But, um, but the women are taken, as is David Gamut. So Hawkeye, the Mohicans, Hayward, Monroe—they're still free. Now, this, as I said, is a real historical event. But Cooper's his addition to this interpretation of this is to put in his his fictional character Maqua, as the one who crafted this massacre as part of his revenge mission. It really raises the villainy of our antagonist to some of the highest levels in American literature, at least up to that point. And, you know, there's few examples of of greater villainy in in American literature after that. Um, I'm sure we can come up with some, but certainly he's up there in the great if we were to make a list of the great American villains, he's up there. Adding another level to the tragedy of the story is that Monroe is forced to watch his daughters be taken away. He's actually going to meet Montcalm to ask, beg him, and to help suppress this kind of uprising or this violence and as he's doing it he actually sees the girls over there and he has to walk past them because he's got a greater obligation to the train and to the evacuees it's kind of nice it's really sad it's really quite touching and there's this moment where they they catch eyes um so that brings us to the end of the second hundred pages of the last of the Mohicans um well not much Hawkeye in this section but a lot of violence we have several battles in just a brief hundred pages. Uh if you know, one the first hundred pages it doesn't see much as happening, but in this one a lot happens. It's really an action packed section of the novel. And and Cooper even has room to do these important kind of background for characterization. Makwa's background, Cora's background, Monroe's time in the in the West Indies. So there are a lot of great stuff in this section of, of the novel. Um so I guess with that, I'll I'll depart you for a little while. I normally would give a few themes here, but I'm, I'm a little bit tired. I started recording this at night. Maybe that's not the best idea. Um, but certainly, race is something we should talk about here. Violence. Uh, I guess those are the, the two big things here. Oh, alcohol, uh, and then the the pressure put on the Indians the Indians as a declining civilization so th- those would be the most important themes in this part of the, no- of, of the novel um, oh also the tools to be on the frontier the, especially that conversation between gamut and Hawkeye so I'll just leave it at that and and let you go uh, thank you so much for listening and sorry for a little bit longer episode than I hope to, hope to give you but there's a lot of great stuff in this part of the novel So uh, I'll have two more episodes on The Last of the Mohicans as we we finish up the story. Um, We're halfway through. We can start to kind of build towards the climax of the novel. Um, And we're going to have a couple more great chases, a couple more great debates, and a really epic, memorable climax to the story. So that will be in future episodes. So again, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments about this novel or my feelings on this on this novel please leave them below or send me an email at 100 pages at gmail.com i would very much love to to hear from you um, but uh, if not i hope you keep listening and keep reading and i will see you in 100 pages let christian men take heart today the devil's rule is done let no man heed the devil more, For Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all what angels sing, How Mary made for Jesus King. He is so sad.